everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of our podcast, Freya Affairs. As always, we are your co-hosts, Marina and Serene. We are both international relations students interning at Raya Group and working alongside a great team of Ariel, Usama, Stephanie, and our beloved writers to bring the latest of Raya to you. We wanted to thank those of you who have been following us as our podcast has had over 280 downloads. Moreover, we're really excited about what the month of August will bring as we will begin a new series within the podcast focusing on climate leaders. So if you're not familiar with what Raya Group does overall, Serene is going to go ahead and explain. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of Raya Affairs. As always, to give you all a brief overview, Raya is an international think tank led by young professionals that translates the abstract world of international affairs by simplifying rather than generalizing. Raya is where you come to learn about the stories and worries of political leaders, the behind the scenes of decision makers, and how politics impacts and changes your life. This is Raya Affairs, filling you in wherever you are. We would also like to make it clear that expressed opinions in this episode are welcome. Even though they're not a direct reflection of Raya, Raya specializes in unbiased writing and analysis. So, last episode, along with Raya writer Laura Revenga Rodriguez, we discussed Polish leader Mateusz Morawiecki as his leadership in the region grows amid the Russian-Ukrainian war. We looked into the how and the why Morawiecki had shifted from a controversial partner for the EU to a reliable and proactive one, and how much of this shift is accounted for due to his foreign policy decisions. So this week, we'll be continuing on the interesting topic of foreign policy and how incremental its weight is in deciding a state's positions among great powers. Moreover, we'll be looking at leaders individually and analyzing how their individual visions influence their style of leadership and governance, socially as well as economically. With that in mind, let's get right into it. To kick off this episode, we will be discussing a leader facing some challenges, Taiwan's Tsai Ing-wen. Raya writer Jack Gastia will be joining us to discuss and analyze Tsai Ing-wen's policies and relations in South Asia amidst growing Chinese influence and economic difficulty. Marina, on to you. All right, so hi Jack and welcome to Raya Affairs. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? So where are you from, what do you do, and why did you choose to join Raya? Hi Marina, thanks so much for having me. My name is Jack Gastia and I'm from the United States. I grew up in the state of New Hampshire, and now I go to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where I study international politics. This is my second term with Raya's research and analysis team, and I chose to join Raya because I find its focus on the individual role in international relations compelling. I also wanted to expand my own perspective by working with a think tank based in Europe. Okay, so great to hear. Now this next question we ask to all our writers because it gives our listeners a sneak peek into who you are and what you're interested in. Plus, it's always really fun to hear the answers. So Jack, what leader, dead or alive, who has impacted the world would you like to have a five-minute conversation with if you could? Now that's a fun question. I think I'd have to say Franklin Roosevelt. I think he'd be fascinated to see how the UN system he helped establish in 1945 continues to undergird the international system today, despite facing serious challenges. Besides, I think he'd have fascinating insights into leadership and crisis, having steered the U.S. and much of the West through the Great Depression and World War II. Thank you, Jack. A great answer. So let's start off with some basic background for those of us unfamiliar with this episode's leader. So who is Tsai Ing-wen and what has accounted for her rise in national politics and her presidency in 2016? Tsai Ing-wen is the president of Taiwan, formerly known as the Republic of China. 
She was elected in 2016 as a member of the Democratic Progressive Party, the left-of-center opposition to the Kuomintang Party, or KMT, which ruled Taiwan for much of the 20th century. Tsai grew up in Taiwan as the youngest of 11 children, but she pursued a legal education in the West, attending Cornell and then the London School of Economics. A particular focus on international trade law led her to serve on the Fair Trade Commission and also the Mainland Affairs Council, dealing with issues relating to the People's Republic of China. In the early 2000s, she also negotiated Taiwan's accession to the World Trade Organization and a gradual ascension to party leadership in the DPP over the next decade or so eventually launched her successful presidential campaign six years ago. And Jack, what has driven Tsai Ing-wen's foreign policy? In other words, what are her main foreign policy aims and ambitions? So Tsai's Democratic Progressive Party has been notoriously less sympathetic to mainland China than the KMT has. While not so brazen as to outright sponsor Taiwanese independence, Tsai Ing-wen has advocated for an increasingly independent and autonomous Taiwan that is globally integrated and less reliant on the Communist People's Republic. This vision has informed Tsai's increased engagement with the United States and its allies, and is the bedrock of her new southbound policy, a plan for international economic engagement with Taiwan's neighbors in South and Southeast Asia. Okay, Jack, so you've mentioned Tsai's new southbound policy right now, and it's also the focus of your article. Just to clarify, from this point forward, um, we'll be calling it the NSP. I would like to go into specifics, however. When was the NSP inaugurated, and what purpose did Tsai have in mind for the NSP? Sure thing. The NSP has been central to President Tsai's foreign policy since her term began in 2016. According to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website, the policy is designed to, quote, revitalize Taiwan's economy and enhance relations with its neighboring countries. Due to the contested nature of Taiwan's status as distinct from or not distinct from the People's Republic of China, Taipei has historically struggled to cultivate formal diplomatic relations in its own neighborhood. However, economic ties represent a creative way to strengthen Taiwan's bilateral relations. Through the NSP, Tsai hopes to bind Taiwan more closely to countries like India, Indonesia, Australia, and New Zealand. She hopes Taiwan can use international trade and investment to reduce Taiwan's dependence on the mainland Chinese market, while also opening the door to further geopolitical cooperation. Perfect, Jack. Um, And in terms of outcome, just as you said, you know, to revitalize Taiwan's economy, to enhance relations with its neighboring countries. How has the NSP succeeded? Because the NSP encompasses such a broad swath of countries, 18 total, including the 10 ASEAN countries, Australia and New Zealand, and six in South Asia, its success has been a mixed bag. Southeast Asia has been a region marked by particular success, as Taiwan has enhanced its trade relationships with countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, as I mentioned. Tsai has also made progress in Australia and New Zealand, both of whom, it should be noted, collaborate with the U.S. and Japan-led bloc countering mainland China's geopolitical influence in the Asia-Pacific. All right, and I just want to follow that up with the other side of the coin, right? So how has the NSP not succeeded? You quote in your article that six years later, some South Asian countries have been kept out of the loop. Why is there such a difficulty observed in Taiwan's attempts to foster relations with South Asian countries? Feel free to give examples, the same you give in your article. Sure. Again, it depends on the particular country and the particular bilateral relationship. As I mentioned before, India has been the exception when it comes to South Asia, as Taiwan in recent months has been in talks regarding a potential free trade agreement and has inaugurated various investment proposals. The NSP also provides a nice balance to India's own Act East policy, which aims to enhance Indian engagement with the Asia-Pacific. 
Bangladesh has also been a limited success case for Sai. However, the NSP has faltered elsewhere. I lay it out more thoroughly in my article, but essentially Bhutan and Nepal in the Himalayas have relatively isolated themselves economically, while Pakistan and Sri Lanka are already saddled with existing investment programs. Most recently, Sri Lanka has devolved into a political and economic crisis after racking up too much foreign debt, much thanks to the People's Republic of China, funnily enough. Ross Hardy actually wrote an interesting Raya article on that topic this past April, if any of our listeners want to check that out too. So as of now, we've discussed this NSP as a major initiative in Taiwan's backyard, but another big player and power is the People's Republic of China, which is where I would like to shift our focus to for now. So since the Russian invasion into Ukraine, multiple parallels have been drawn between Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan. Ukraine and Taiwan being the underdogs here shadowed by big powers. In fact, around June, China was conducting military exercises around the island, essentially signaling its readiness with multiple parties expressing worry for Taiwan. So, Jack, could you give us a bit more background into the latest developments in Chinese-Taiwanese relations since the invasion and how they have escalated? Definitely. You're right to say that the Ukraine crisis has turned more eyes on Taiwan. And while their circumstances are not quite the same, both Ukraine and Taiwan face large, powerful, nuclear-armed neighbors claiming their territorial autonomy is illegitimate. Since Russia further invaded Ukraine this February, Taiwan and its neighbors have reinforced their defenses in the event of a similar situation with China. I'd recommend a fascinating article in The Atlantic by Chris Horton from May that goes into the ways everyday Taiwanese people have equipped themselves for potential combat, including by doing things like developing firearm skills and learning how to perform trauma surgery. This behavior, though, has added to the People's Republic's fears that Taiwan will try to completely break away from China during Xi's presidency, or at least while the DPP is in charge. You correctly pointed out, Serene, that China's military has been increasingly active in the Taiwan Strait. Xi Jinping, leader of the Chinese Communist Party, has recently okayed a trial of military operations other than war beyond China's borders. And as The Guardian pointed out, this language seems to echo Vladimir Putin's, quote, special military operation in Ukraine. I should note, however, that cross-strait tensions were already rising even before the invasion, with particular concern for Taiwan last fall, as the People's Republic flew a record number of military jets into Taiwan's air defense zone. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for elaborating on that point, Jack. And another interesting point to add is that I was reading a week ago that the State Department approved the sale of $108 million of military assistance to Taiwan. And according to the Pentagon, this was a sale requested by Taipei. So essentially here we observe another reaction by the other superpower across the Atlantic in reaction to the latest events you mentioned enacted by China, with the U.S. ultimately seeking to increase its engagement with Taiwan as the island nation resists the pressure campaign by China to accept its sovereignty over the island. And anyway, speaking of sovereignty, another interesting point you make in your article is the question of Taiwan sovereignty. So while Tsai has and continues to direct efforts for increased sovereignty and global trade, China, more specifically the Chinese Communist Party, has indicated the eventual goal of reunification between the two in 2049. And this is actually the PRC's 100th anniversary. And with this, there's been some attention brought to Taiwan's production of microchips, given their dominance of the world's preeminent semiconductor manufacturing facilities, with multiple crises in microchip production over the last two years, as we know. 
So you also mentioned that in the case of reunification, China would gain enormous advantage, not only economically, but also military-wise due to the microchip production. So I guess my question here would be more in the direction of the economy. How would the possibility of reunification play out, given that the economy would be a major deciding factor in this scenario? One of Taiwan's primary exports, and the thing that has made it especially valuable to international buyers, is the semiconductor, also known as a microchip, like you mentioned. The Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, effectively dominates the market, and these products are used in all sorts of electronics, from iPhones to F-35s. You can see why control of the market, then, can yield so much power. So, in the event of reunification, the fate of this industry would be up in the air. As I mentioned in my article, the immediate concerns of a violent reunification would include increased prices as conflict interrupts supply chains, like we've seen with energy and food products coming out of Ukraine. And even in the event of a non-violent reunification, where Taiwan, say, voluntarily reunifies with China— Control of semiconductor production is still unclear. A strong possibility in this scenario would be that the Chinese Communist Party would be able to control global semiconductor prices by controlling production, a la OPEC, ceding China an enormous economic and military advantage. Thanks, Jack, for laying out that scenario. But while Serene's question was related to hard power, at least the first part of that question, I wanted to focus on this second aspect, more particularly about China's perspective when it comes to Taiwan's growing soft power at the international stage. Tsai's negotiation and consequent Taiwanese ascension to the World Trade Organization has expanded the country's international trade and allowed the leader to really follow through with her foreign policy aims. However, how has China reacted to Taiwan's participation in the WTO, and how does this participation play out for China's interests in Taiwan? In 2002, Taiwan acceded to the World Trade Organization just 21 days after China. It was a huge win for Taiwan, in large part because it gave the island formal recognition in a major intergovernmental organization. But it also added a peculiar aspect to the China-Taiwan relationship— namely due to the fact that all members of the WTO must treat each other equally as most favored trading partners. Meaning that while WTO accession gave China an increased role in the world economy, it also expanded the economic position of Taiwan. Being a member of that organization facilitated Taiwan's ability to reach out to its neighbors in Asia, to deepen its economic ties with the United States. And it also means that mainland China has had to more carefully calibrate its economic decision-making these past 20 years, as it has become formally impossible for it to simply ignore or neglect Taiwan. All right, and before we go into our top three takeaways on research and analysis, I think we can definitely comment on Tsai Ing-wen as a leader, one who has had to pursue self-sufficiency through policies such as the NSP in order to reduce any sort of economic dependence on mainland China. So to tie it all together, Jack, what consequences can we observe through the NSP's underperformance in South Asia in terms of deteriorating opportunities for self-sufficiency? The NSP has by no means been a total failure. India and ASEAN, for example, have definitely seen increased engagement from Taiwan. However, the missed opportunities in South Asia ultimately represent just that, missed opportunities. In foreign policy and international relations, you want to have options at your disposal. You want to hedge your bets. You want to expand your connections. 
so that you're not caught with just one course of action in the event of a crisis. At this moment, Taiwan is not in crisis mode, but the less reliant the island is on mainland China and the deeper its partnerships and trust in South Asia, the more opportunities Tsai will have to craft favorable circumstances and favorable negotiations. Having a lot of friends and a lot of customers can only help Taiwan. And in South Asia, Tsai could just simply do more. That's a great analysis, Jack. Exactly those missed opportunities. But lastly, I wanted to ask, what could the NSP's underperformance or success, right, mean in terms of regional security? So feel free to make any last remarks. Thanks. So if Taiwan chooses to remain underinvolved in South Asia, the PRC and other actors will fill the void. Yes, Pakistan and Sri Lanka may have been burned by Chinese investment in the past, but China retains relationships and dependencies that Taiwan lacks. Bhutan faces a territorial threat from China not unlike Taiwan's, and Nepal simply doesn't want to choose between great power China and great power India. Thanks for elaborating on that, Jack. And with that, it seems that we've come to the end of our discussion. But just before moving on to our much-awaited Q&A section, we wanted to know what do you believe are the three top takeaways our listeners should have in the process of research and analysis? More specifically, could you relate it to what you have learned in your own process of research and analysis? We think that the specifics of this process, especially in regards to hot news and superpowers, is a topic of particular interest considering the large amount of disinformation that is out there. Okay, here goes. Number one takeaway for research and analysis that I'd say is to read as much as you can get your hands on. It's good to get the full set of facts in front of you, understand the history behind a given issue or leader, and open your mind up to various perspectives. That's key to combating disinformation. Second, I'd say to dive into motivations. What do the players involved want? As we say at Raya, what drives a leader? You can look at speeches or past experiences, but anything really helps you understand the things pushing a particular policy or vision. Third, I'd hold whatever you've written, whatever you've thought, up to the so what test. Ask yourself, how does this impact those not immediately involved? Why does it matter? Why am I writing about it? These sorts of questions get to the core of an issue, but also to the core of who you are as a writer and as an analyst. All right, so Jack, it's time for our Q&A, and this is a segment in which we discuss the questions sent in by our viewers in anticipation of our podcast, and it's always directed to you, to our writers. So Lara from Sao Paulo has sent the following. Taiwan and the U.S. have kept close relations, with the U.S. somewhat promising Taiwan's protection from China. Do Tsai's expectations of the Biden administration follow through with this said promise? So I should take this opportunity to clarify something. Despite various unofficial statements by President Biden, the United States still approaches Taiwan with a policy of strategic ambiguity, established in the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. This means that the U.S. government does not officially support or oppose assisting Taiwan in the event of a military confrontation with China. The United States deliberately does not commit to Taiwan's defense, while also not committing to letting China force reunification. So given this, Tsai has worked to cultivate positive relations with the Biden administration while understanding Taiwan needs to be capable of self-defense. This gets back to why it's so important for Taiwan to integrate itself in its own neighborhood to reduce dependence on China, but also to reduce dependence on the United States. 
Besides, the U.S. has made it pretty clear in Ukraine that military support will stop short of U.S. troops on the ground in a non-treaty ally. Taiwanese have seen this and are preparing themselves for a similar contingency. Perfect. So next up, we have Joe from Beirut. And Joe asks, who is Taiwan's greatest ally within their backyard? Thanks for the question, Joe. So using the term ally is interesting when it comes to Taiwan. Given the ambiguity of Taiwan's sovereignty as distinct from that of China, Taiwan only has formal diplomatic alliances with 14 countries, mostly small powers. In the Pacific, this includes the Marshall Islands, Nauru, Palau, and Tuvalu. However, I would say that Taiwan's most important partner, aside from the United States, is Japan. Under the late Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, Taiwan and Japan greatly increased their cooperation across policy areas in the name of countering China. I should note that Japan has its own territorial dispute with China over the Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands north of Taiwan. In 2013, Taiwan and Japan negotiated a significant agreement on fishing rights in the East China Sea, and Japan later co-sponsored the U.S. and Taiwan-led Global Cooperation and Training Framework. The COVID pandemic has encouraged bilateral tech and health collaboration, and finally, in the wake of Russia's further invasion of Ukraine this past winter, Fumio Kishida has reinforced Japan's interest in cooperating with Taiwan. As Japanese leadership currently understands it, a threat to Taiwan is a threat to Japan, and a threat to the Indo-Pacific as a whole. Okay, everyone, so as the podcast comes to an end, I have to say that while in every episode I learn something new, it's really refreshing to discuss and learn about an East Asian leader. It's not so often that political analysis, at least in my experience of living and studying in Europe, focuses on this region, let alone in a country like Taiwan. If anything, it's the usual narrative about China and the fears that come with this growing economic powerhouse. However, in this episode of Rai Affairs, alongside with Jack, we have been able to really explore Taiwan's Tsai Ing-wen and her motivations behind her main foreign economic policy, the new southbound policy, and the challenges she has faced with neighboring states. International trade, self-sufficiency, economic development and not dependency, and sovereignty remain integral for the success of this economic policy and are the topics that we have discussed and featured. Throughout this discussion, we have been able to really evaluate the NSP's success as one filled with uncertainty, yet one, as Jack comments, necessary for new opportunities to open up to Taiwan away from mainland China, which goes to show how foreign policy is tied to Tsai's domestic aspirations. Jack and Serene also delved into Chinese military activity, future plans of possible reunification, and the great microchip question when it comes to Taiwan and China's economic interests. Again, our guest has outdone himself in giving us expert analysis and answering our questions and yours on Tsai Ing-wen, a leader to look out for. So thank you for coming on here, Jack, for being so knowledgeable, concise, and for giving us an opportunity to learn more about Tsai Ing-wen. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jack. We've learned a lot today thanks to your expert analysis and research. And for those of you who have enjoyed our discussion and are just as impressed as we are with Jack and you want to read Jack's article, click the link in the episode description or find Jack's research on riagroup.org. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram, raya.now. Finally, it was a pleasure hosting this talk today. We're your co-hosts, Serene and Marina. Goodbye from us, and thanks for tuning in. Have a great day in your sphere of influence. Mm-hmm.